The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. gentlemen, and welcome to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network. This is a show where we discuss with the clergy uh, various uh, issues in the church and in everyday life. The uh, current crisis that we're in affects it, and what the Catholic approach and response to these various things ought to be. I'm your host, Nicholas Wansbutter, and I have the great pleasure of being joined, as always, by His Lordship Bishop Daniel Dolan, pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio, and the assistant pastor of the same church, uh, Father Anthony Chicada. So, my Lord and Father, uh, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us once again. Well, thank you very much. You're certainly welcome. Thank you, Nicholas. So, today on Clerical Conversations, we're going to be following up a little bit on last month's episode. Last month, we did a summer news roundup talking about uh, various things that have been going on over the past few months, uh, including the wars raging in uh, in the Ukraine involving Russia, talking about the riots near St. Louis. We talked about the constant wars that the modern state, specifically the United States, but many other modern so-called democratic states are engaged in. And we wanted to follow up a little bit on that, and this uh, episode will be speaking more specifically about militarism, and we, we take it from the approach of uh, Machiavelli versus St. Martin of Tours as our two competing viewpoints that we'll be uh, be looking at. But uh, before we we get into the meat of that uh, material, Maud, uh, could I ask you to start us off with a prayer? Absolutely. Thank you. This is the classic prayer for peace. Give peace, O Lord, in our time, because there is none other that fighteth for us, save thou only, O our God. Let peace be within thy ramparts, and um, ease in thy strongholds. Let us pray. O Christ, the peace of heaven and the great calm of earth, cause thy peace and quiet to abide in the four quarters of the world, and especially in thy holy Catholic Church. Bring wars on earth to an end. Scatter the nations that delight in war, so that we may enjoy a quiet and peaceful life in all sobriety and fear of God, who livest and reignest forever and ever. Amen. Well, thank you for that, Lord. And um, I think to start off our discussion, I know, Lord, you wanted to talk a little bit about the kingship of Christ and how that ought to apply to our age today. Thank you, Nicholas. Yes, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Uh, it's it's a term, and the feast, of the, the liturgical feast, uh, that, that celebrates the reality of, of that term is coming soon, the last Sunday of October. Um, but it's something which uh, I think easily in daily life amongst those uh, Catholics who are left in the in the world today uh, can could be oh almost viewed as the purview of maybe some internet bloggers or uh, somebody's hobby horse. It's a term people talk about. What does it mean really? The kingship of Christ, and it, it or also could be reduced to some sort of a fantastical notion of of that um, uh, that that America somehow has to become uh, the the. the a, a truly a Catholic nation, and, and that and that somehow we have, if if that doesn't happen, then well we don't know what else is going to happen, so we really don't do anything. It it starts with prayer, it starts with belief, it starts with the claim. We claim America, we claim the world for Christ. The idea of the kingship of Christ, I think, in our day, has 
after that must then start with this worldview. We had the, the news roundup last, uh, last month, so I'm thinking about this. The worldview is, is this. There's nothing and there's nobody that does not come under the purview of the kingship of Christ. Christ the king has something to say about the way, yes, he has something to say about America, the way countries are run. He has something to say about wars. He has something to say about politics and diplomacy. He's not meant to be shut up in the sacristies uh, or, in, or, on, or on the internet, somebody's blog post. No. Uh, and we have to see it this way. And if we see it this way, then we, we make judgments, um, we hold opinions, and we try to persuade others accordingly, according to the kingship of Christ. So today we want to talk about soldiers, we want to talk about militarism, we want to talk some more about the wars, because we live in a world in the West of perpetual war now. What does that mean, and, and why is it wicked and evil? Um, why have we gone over from the world of St. Martin, the world of Catholic, Catholic saints and fighting for Christ the King, to the world of Machiavelli, behind-the-scenes manipulation, propaganda, and all the rest. So that, that's maybe that's the framework, I think, in which we could talk about these things today, Nicholas. Mm-hmm. I suppose an important point to be made is, in Catholic theology, being a soldier, per se, or in and of itself, isn't something immoral. Is that right? That's right, and I'm glad you brought that up right away. That's an important point to make. Catholics are not pacifists. Why is that? Because Catholics are submissive to the teaching of Holy Mother Church, and the Church doesn't doesn't teach that. She has never endorsed that. So we're not <clears throat> nutty in this program. I hope we don't come across as nutty left wingers. With uh, you know, we take our we, we have our scriptures and we have our own interpretation of them, and we want to want to impose it on all the world. But the reality is this. That, as, as we'll see today in the, the question of uh, the, co- the, the necessary conditions for a just war, wars hardly ever meet the conditions that the Church, through her saints and her magisterium, lay down for a just war. And the, so what we're, what we're talking about is, is not an opposition to war per se, which is indifferent. <clears throat> could be good or could be evil, depending on the conditions, con- con- uh, whether we ought to participate in it, support it, or whether we ought to condemn it. Most wars have been truly wicked, and most wars today are today truly wicked and opposed to Catholic theology. But we're not pacifists. We are, well, we're Catholics. We're fighting for Christ mm. the King. Mm-hmm. And uh, Father, I, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of an overview to refresh us on what exactly the Church teachings on just war are. Well, it's uh, an issue and a question that has been um, you know, very completely discussed by Catholic moralists and Catholic theologians. So they lay down uh, a number of conditions for a war, uh, for it to be just, for it to be morally licit in terms of, of uh, Catholic teaching. Uh, first of all, you have to have uh, right intention. Uh, secondly, there has to be a just cause for the war. And by just cause, they mean one that, um, a reason that is proportionately grave. Uh, that's one of uh, the conditions there morally certain, uh, obviously because of the uh, terrible effects that a war has, necessary, and uh, one that you can only obtain through war. So that um, uh, is the idea of a a just cause for the war. And then uh, there are other conditions that are laid down as well. Uh, You have to avoid disproportionately greater evils that could result from going to war. You have to take care not to cause more harm than necessary, and that you have to observe the natural law and uh, the law of nations when it comes to war. So uh, you can hear just from uh, that long and highly developed list uh, that uh, Catholic moralists and theologians have, have uh, laid down, that it's a pretty high barrier uh, to get to the point where you can have a just war. Hmm. Now, now so, what sort of, what sort of um, things would be considered a sufficiently grave cause 
Right, well, the uh, they speak theologians speak generally in terms of uh, some sort of a, 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 a grave or a grave damage that has been uh, done to you, uh, or the trampling by another nation on uh, of, of nation A on the rights of nation B. So if nation A invades the enemy's uh, uh, territory, uh, then you certainly have a right to uh, defend against that. Or the uh, seizure of uh, um, land of a nation, let's say, in another part of the world. And uh, sometimes it is justifiable for uh, when it is, is uh, certain that there is a, a menace from uh, nation A against nation B, a nation uh, B may uh, uh, engage in a war to uh, prevent that menace. Is there a restriction on how far one may go in prosecuting war, how much force one may use? Well, they always say that it has to be proportionate. Okay. That um, uh, for small or uh, a light offense, uh, the use of some uh, sort of weapon that would um, harm a great number of innocent combatants would certainly never be justified, if, in, if indeed you could justify it at all. Question so the I idea could, is that, I, that you're, always, you're always hemmed in. Right. Uh, you're always hemmed in. in the, so that's the, one the, thing I wonder about is the, the massive destructive capability of modern weaponry. Is it even possible to justly wage a war today with the type of weapons that are on hand? Well, you certainly see the the uh, terrible effects of that in uh, so many nations, so many people that uh, have been harmed. I suppose theoretically and practically possible to engage in a uh, just war under the principles that we've laid down, but it, it's, it, it's always a question of... Uh, extreme care and the uh, the limitation of force. Uh, mm-hmm. When you're using uh, airplanes to uh, bomb or to try to target people in, in civilian areas, I mean, uh, obviously, there is a, uh, there's a real problem with that from a moral point of view, because there's the likelihood that you're going to uh, harm uh, people who are innocent and who should not be harmed. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, nuclear war would, would, would come in here as, as the best example of that. Because of uh, the broad effects of uh, a nuclear explosion uh, in terms of hitting anything that is like a population area, and then uh, the other bad effects of that in the long term with the ability of of, uh, radioactivity and the the contamination of radioactive weapons to uh, get to parts of the civilian population. Mm Mm-hmm. So you really have a problem justifying the use of those weapons. So it sounds to me that if you could even use those weapons, it would have to be only in the most dire of circumstances um, where the not using them would result in worse things happening to the world and to the countries involved than using them would? Yes, yes, exactly. So just merely trying to shorten a war by a few months sounds like that probably yeah. wouldn't fall under justifiable use of something that massively yeah. destructive. Sure, you think of what we did at the end of the Second World War, so. particularly when that uh, that was put forward as as a reason. Was it was it the reason or was it simply an excuse? Yes. Right. Good question. Uh, good question, especially when dealing with politics and uh, and with politicians. Which takes us to Machiavelli, right? <laughs> yeah, indeed, it does. This, this is this. We we live in the age of Machiavelli, uh, and everything is every, i.e., uh, everything is manipulated behind the scenes. 
uh, scenes, scenarios are set up, the propaganda is pumped out using all of the uh, the, the exorbitant means that are available today in order to um, hoodwink the populace into into uh, going along with it. And uh, by the, and the populace, unfortunately, one must include as well the clergy and even the hierarchy, uh, who sometimes um, simply were not present or not vocal enough to, to give a clear moral leadership uh, against the propaganda, against the confusion, against the lies, and they allow themselves to be to be manipulated too. So, and it's Machiavelli behind everything for for the evil and the wicked purposes of um, these uh, these wars. Sometimes simply, it's um, sometimes it simply is the the power of the moment, <clears throat> the glory of the country, the empire, and then sometimes it's it's ideological. I think from the late um, Renaissance, I've been seeing this with um, the root of the rot series, also on Restoration Radio, free advertisement. That since the time really of Machiavelli and, and before him Marsilio of Padua, the French uh, Philip the Fair, the German Frederick Barbarossa, their their battles against the Church, against the Pope for secularism, for a secular, non-Christ the King approach to uh, to life and society and power. Those are all those are all factors. So, in, but increasingly, then from leading into the era of the revolutions, the Protestant revolt, and then especially the French Revolution, wars serve an ideological purpose, sometimes a direct one, uh, and then sometimes um, an indirect one. And but the trouble that that we face, the trouble that our listeners face, and anyone faces, wants to be a well, a thinking human being, much less a Catholic, a servant, a soldier of Christ the King. How do you get past all the lies and all the confusion just to be able to sort this stuff out? That could be a full-time task. That's a battle that all of us are truly obliged to wage one way one way and, and, and another. So the, the principles of the Catholic Church, such as we've been hearing about the just war, are a tremendous help to that. But we also need to look at some way of, of getting beyond the, the Machiavellian uh, puppeteering, puppet pulling of, of propaganda and, 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 and the, the, the attack on the mind, the attack on truth itself that's used pretty shamelessly by those who have power. Mm-hmm. And it's um, the aim of that, of course, is to try to portray the cause for whatever is the war du jour as a just cause. Yeah. And uh, it, the the power of modern propaganda to move people's minds to uh, accept what is um, uh, accept a cause that is essentially immoral is uh, very very powerful and almost overwhelming because we live in this this uh, uh, media age. Uh, this age where uh, communication is instantaneous. Uh, this age where the uh, different communications media can be used in a very powerful and uh, a very convincing and a very manipulative way. So the the, the our, our our masters, as it were, in the uh, political order realize this and try to spin their particular causes for war as as uh, just and uh, as reasonable. But we have to, again, I think we talked about this before, uh, look at what we see through the uh, prism, through the the lenses of the Catholic faith, and realize that the uh, ways and the aims of politicians in uh, the world, the the political, uh, military, media, uh, legal, uh, industrial complex... Uh, that uh, their means and their ends are uh, far uh, different from those who uh, seek the kingship of Christ. Mm-hmm. So we have to have uh, complete uh, uh, skepticism, and one uh, might almost say a sort of cynicism uh, towards this uh, manipulation that we're subjected to from this, this giant propaganda complex. As Catholics, we, we have to uh, look at it uh, differently and filter everything through the faith. And I, I think a good point to keep in mind is people need to remember who our rulers are today. Uh, this isn't a thousand years ago when everyone had Catholic rulers, and they might not all have been good Catholics. In fact, probably a great many of them weren't very good Catholics, but they still knew right from wrong, and they still had some limitations 
placed mm-hmm. upon themselves, yeah. and uh, some fear of God and, and excommunication meant something to a lot of them, whereas our rulers today are not even remotely Catholic, and so th- that should be right there a reason for great skepticism and careful analysis of anything that's going on. Just skepticism needs to be, as Father says, has to be the order of the day. It, it truly, it truly must. And as you say, of course, because because our, our masters are just aren't. It, it, it's not that they're not the the good men that they portray themselves to be. It's that they're antichrists. They are all of them for uh, a, a totally anti-Christian order, or rather, a disorder in society. <clears throat> they use and they use the wars. As we've talked about this in, on Restoration Radio many times. We hit upon this theme. They use the wars in all sorts of different ways for social manipulation uh, for um, for class control for setting up for a new war so that we can live in the era of perpetual war for the taking away of just individual liberties and it's so sad to see it really is, isn't it a tragedy to think of Catholics we call them traditional Catholics true Catholics who really keep the true faith and 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 the true mass who are totally taken in by all of this propaganda. How sad, how sad that is. Uh, and it's our job then, fighting for the kingship of Christ, to try to open up some eyes at least. Now, I'm just trying to think, thinking, what, what's the Catholic response if you're already a soldier in this? And I know, Lord, you wanted to talk a bit about the story of St. Martin of Tours. So it occurs to me that that's a good example of a Catholic who was a soldier in a completely non-Catholic regime and military, and what his reaction was may be uh, useful for us to discuss at this point. Yes, but we, we could maybe sort of, in effect, put the cart before the horse here, because we could talk about how St. Saint, Saint Martin dealt with the issue, and then maybe talk about how it really is an issue for many of our young people who are tempted to join mm-hmm. the military. But, but first of all, uh, a little bit about St. Martin, who comes from Pannonia, ancient Hungary, and uh, the Roman Empire. His father's um, a soldier, and because his father is a soldier, there's a, there's a law in the Roman Empire that the son must then enter the army as well. So at 15, his father's a pagan. His mother's a Christian, but his father's a pagan. So he delivers him over, and he, but he's a catechumen. He's not baptized yet, according to the custom of the day. And um, he is, um, he, and he, he enters into the army, which is totally pagan world. Pagan, everything is pagan, 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 and he he enters into the army as as a as as a true Christian catechumen, and so he's got um he's got his servant because you didn't do you know everybody had servants he had, he had his servant, but he served his servant <laughs> because he was a Christian, and he and, and the other soldiers thought this was hilarious they 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 hooted and they howled and they they mocked him and all the rest of it because he actually put his faith into practice, um in in this very pagan world in the immoral pagan world. And then um, everyone, of course, knows the story about cutting his garment in half for the cold, shivering beggar outside of the city of Amiens, and our Lord appearing to him that night and saying, Martin's only a catechumen, but look, he's clothed me with his own garment. Then after that, the next thing is interesting. He, um, uh, he seeks out baptism because of this grace and the apparition from our Lord. He knows he can't delay it any longer, even though he's in this pagan world. There's a, um, the Roman army is uh, in, in Gaul, is facing a German invasion. Germanic barbarians are almost at the gates of the city. Julian, the emperor, who happens to be Julian the apostate, comes to town to stir up the troops, and he's summoning everybody on the eve of the battle to receive a bonus a soldier's bonus to, to ensure that they will fight well and bravely and that the Roman Empire will obtain. So it's, it's, a, it's a just cause. They're repelling a pagan and uh, or barbarian invader. They're defending their territory. But um, it's, a, it's a pagan world, and he's torn in conscience. Uh, there's, there, there's, there's not only a pagan attitude about everything, but also literally the worship of, of the emperor, the worship of the labarum or the, um, the, the, the battle standard. Uh, and in conscience, he can't go along with that paganism because he's baptized. So when he's called before uh, the emperor to receive his bonus, he says, Miles Christisum, Miki Pugnari non licet. End of story. I'm the soldier of Christ now. I can't fight. It's not allowed for me to fight. 
And so they accuse him of being a coward. And uh, he's and he says, no, I'm not a coward. It's not a question of that at all, but I'm a soldier of Christ now. It's, it's everything, I'm baptized. Everything's different. And then he, um, he, uh, the emperor orders him to be imprisoned and to be put in the—he uh, himself then offers—he says, put me, put me in, in the front lines of the battle tomorrow, and I'll show you that I am no coward. And the emperor takes him up on it, and so the next day he's to, he's to stand in the very front lines against the— the, the Huns, the barbarians. And um, the barbarians, curiously enough, that they make peace. There is no battle. There, there's a treaty, and the, and the war is over, and, and the apostate Julian rides off. And uh, uh, our saint then uh, seeks, off, uh, seeks um, uh, to, to serve our Lord, and eventually he will, he'll be a monk, and then the, the Bishop of, uh, Bishop of Tours, the, the great apostle of France. But that's, that's a telling phrase. I'm, I'm a soldier of Christ now. I'm not allowed to fight. In other words, in this, in this pagan world. And his story, I think of the story of many saints today, say we're recording this on the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi. Like many saints, uh, he, he was uh, in the army and was, in effect, like many young people today in the army, he was traumatized by what he saw. And it really changed. He came back really sick from the, the, some, some little war, uh, local war in, um, uh, around Assisi. And um, it, it really changed. They say it changed him. It changed his life. It almost changed his personality. And our Lord used that, as he did with many saints, to, to, for his own holiness, his purification, and, and, to, and to promote God's glory. But St. Francis had to get out of the army, too. He was all equipped and ready to go. Um, and it was a it was a war that, that the popes were involved in. It was some useless war, you know. To get somebody as emperor in Sicily, something like that. And and he just he just he gave everything away and just rode away. He realized it was it was it was wrong. That it was wasteful. And this wasn't God's will. So that's <clears throat> these this is some of, these are some of the the, the examples of, of maybe the the science of the saints about yeah. all of that. I looked up in preparation for the show a couple of speeches of St. Bernard of Clairvaux to see what sort of things he had to say about the, um, when he was preaching, I think it was the Second Crusade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to see his take on it because that was a, a just war approved by the Pope, but he, he still, he frames it in terms of it's a penance to, uh, this isn't um, man's glory to, to go to war even in a just cause, but he uh, frames his penance in the, a speech mm-hmm. that he gave around 1145. Uh, one of the things that he said, he says, Clothe not yourselves in sackcloth, but cover yourselves with your impenetrable bucklers. The din of arms, the dangers, the labors, the fatigues of war are the penances that God ha- now imposes upon you. So he said, Let your deliverance of holy places be the reward for your repentance. And he speaks about how because of the great sinfulness of the age, that's why God has given them this penance that they have to go and fight against the Mohammedans in, in the Holy Land to rescue the holy places. Father Chikat and I were talking about that today. What you know, what would be some historical or Catholic examples of of a just war? And some of the Crusades, certainly the Crusades, as they were conceived by the saints, by Pope Urban II and Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, they were in in theory uh, just. And sometimes it was actually carried out. But um, all of the wickedness of men and of warfare, I would liken it to. Um, to the, the the truth, the moral truth that uh, there are occasions that do call for a justified anger, and sometimes if you don't show a certain anger, modified a uh, proper modified kind of anger, it would be it would be wrong or sinful on your part. I mean, well, it, there there are occasions that call for war, and if you didn't fight in the war, that would be wrong or sinful too. But once you unleash the dogs of war, oh boy, I guess that's Shakespeare. Once you unleash the dogs of war, you've got trouble, and you you see that even in these Christian wars, how often they went astray, and how often it was just looting and carnage and wasted lives um, and, and scandal. And the, the pure ideal is there, but it's very hard to attain that. So examples would be, oh, some of the great rosary battles and the rosary crusades, starting with Murray and St. Um, uh, Dominic uh, against, against the Mohammedans, France, uh, Spain, um, 
and then and then some of the great rosary battles of Lepanto, for example, we'll be having October, the, the, the month of the rosary, October 7th, the anniversary of the victory of Lepanto, September's uh, anniversary of the Battle of Vienna with the, the Polish King Jan Sobieski. It was glorious. But th- they were glorious and they were Catholic. And so the, the soldiers had to go to confession. They prayed the rosary. They went to Mass first. Or their, their, their king led them in the worship of God first on his knees. The king insisted he serve Mass. Um, and, and these were because they were they were fought for God, for His glory, for a just cause, and with God, uh, they were they were successful sometimes against tremendous odds. So no, you know, to answer the original question, we Catholics are not necessarily we're not pacifists. That's something that somebody made up. That's yet another error or falsehood. But we're Catholics, but we're soldiers of Christ. So you can fight sometimes, but it has to be done uh, in this in uh, according to Catholic theology. Mm-hmm. And well, one of the other be, things. Uh, sorry, go well, ahead. One Bob. of the other points, going back uh, to the uh, Crusades and the uh, justification for good war and so on, was so in the case of the Fourth Crusade. Uh, it ended up as a. Uh, it ended up in a very, very immoral state, as it were, because it was used. Uh, politically to uh, uh, bring down the empire of Constantinople, to to bring down the city of Constantinople, and to loot it. So you had uh, something, uh, you had a a war that um, started out as theoretically just for the freeing of the holy places. And it it was... uh, the crusade was proclaimed by Innocent III, Pope Innocent III, but then you had it completely uh, diverted in uh, in practice to an end that uh, uh, that was immoral. Mm-hmm. So I suppose this is proof, if anything, of uh, the care you have to uh, uh, exercise when uh, it comes to uh, justifying and, and promoting a war because it can get out of control and very immoral things can result from it. Just a, a bit of a sidebar on the sack of Constantinople, though. I, I, certainly it was condemned by the, the Pope of the time. He was horrified by the fact that this had happened. But I do think, just in fairness, for fairness of the record, it's not quite the way it's portrayed, though, by a lot of popular histories, and certainly the way it's portrayed by the Orthodox, who try to use that situation as a justification for their ongoing schism, because they try to portray it as, oh, the Crusaders just sacked Constantinople because they hate Orthodox people, and this just proves how evil Latin Catholics are. I mean, it was diverted off its true course, but the way they got diverted is that course, Byzantine politics. Being Byzantine, there was a deposed emperor who offered to help the Crusaders get to the Holy Land, and he was going to give them all kinds of money and troops to help them be successful on their crusade if they helped him regain his crown. And so that's how they came to be at Constantinople in the first place, and they did help him get his crown. And then when he didn't deliver is when things went went really awry because then they were getting impatient and then the Byzantines decided they didn't like having all these Latin people there and they were going to try and kick them out and then things went completely off the rails. I mean, I, I think it, that's, a, that's a worthwhile history lesson there. It's, it's very, but, and, it, and doesn't that illustrate the bigger point of our discussion today? That is to say, the, uh, the goals, the politics of, of men, uh, their, their desires for power in effect, and, and the, the money manipulation too. Of all, all of these things get in the way of the kingship of Christ. Right. Yeah, yeah and they they, are, they lost sight of their objective and got caught up in objective. this this deal with the emperor. If they had just taken the high road and figured, okay, well, we got him his crown back, he gave us partial payment, and he'll get us to the Holy Land, let's continue on, then it could have all been avoided. But, yeah, I uh, think you have to... I think you, you could one almost say... It's a lovely idea to have a war today, but let's not do it until we have a saint to lead us. You need a saint or two hanging around uh, and, and the, to, give, to give the example, to give the charismatic leadership, the holiness of it, uh, and certainly Our Lady most of all. Uh, the Queen of Angels. You need her. Uh, and if you don't have these things, it's just going to run amok. And it almost, 
always runs amok. Even under the, with Catholics, under the best of circumstances in the ages of faith, look at these stories, how awful they are, and much, much less today, the 21st century or the 20th century, yesterday. My goodness. Right. It, it seems you could say that war is almost, uh, it's something that gets out of control so easily that it's something you have to be very, very careful to even let out of the, its cage in the first place. Absolutely. Well, it's like anger. It's like St. Francis de Sales and talking about anger. It's just be very, very careful before you let it out of its cage, because it 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 it, it, it prowls about like like the devil and seek, seeking whom he may devour. Mm-hmm. But um, but tell us about your experiences and let's talk a little bit about about what uh, the war machine does to our youth as it absorbs them into these modern armies of the modern so-called democracies. Right, yeah, and I think that's something very important to talk about because I know more than a few young traditional Catholics who've been lured into joining armies of various countries. I think it's something that is attractive to young people. I know I wasn't a traditional Catholic yet, but I was attracted to it because you have that sense of patriotism. And I think a lot of people, they have a view Mm -hmm. of what the armies were like in the past, you know, our grandfathers, their father's army, what it was like then. So I, I was in the army for four years. And I mean, aside from all the, uh, the, the unjust wars that are going on, that, that's one part of the problem is I wouldn't join the army now or have any of my sons join the army now just because I wouldn't want them fighting in, in wars like that. But uh, the, the other well, your daughter is joined the army either, right, Nicholas? Well, <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> and that's doesn't a, that point out one of the big, big problems today? Right, and and that's yeah, that that's the other issue. I think Father Chicago, yeah. we were talking the pre-show. You're saying that they use the modern military is used as a social laboratory. Yes, that's become very much the uh, case with the American military. It's, it is a giant uh, uh, social lab for experiments with society in a way of uh, it's because you're under orders in the army and there are policies and, and um, regulations. The so-called politically uh, correct principles of uh, modern secular politics and modern secular society are enforced on those who join the military and heaven help you obviously if you try to go against those principles so this is it's done on uh you know this this uh uh, absolutely enormous global scale what did we come up with for a number of people in the american military to how many million nicholas Oh, uh, 1.4 million are in active service, plus about another 800,000 in the reserves. So that's a giant uh, uh, social experimentation network. And the use of the American military as uh, a lab like that uh, started to uh, come about in the 1960s. I suppose, relatively immune from that sort of thing beforehand, but now with the advantages, again, of of, of modern communications and the uh, opposition to the uh, military by the political left in the United States during the Vietnam War, then the uh, leftist principles and the socialization principles started to be enforced across the board in the United States military. And then, of course, everyone else takes the uh, cue from our lead and does the same things with their military institutions. So right. it's really a, um, uh, in that sense, even apart from the uh, the perspective of whether or not the U.S. military uh, conducts just wars or unjust wars, it's uh, very bad from that point of view because of the uh, immoral principles it tries to inculcate uh, into those who join it. Mm-hmm. What are some examples of immoral principles in action? The idea of the mixing of the sexes, mm-hmm. uh, that this, uh, in, uh, this uh, astounding idea that you should have men and women fighting alongside uh, each other, that the vocation of a woman is not to be um, a wife and uh, a mother, but to be part of this uh, this military machine. 
So uh, there's that difficulty. Then there's the promotion of, of immorality, uh, sexual immorality, because of the mixing of the sexes. And uh, the, the idea that it's a, something which is a constant occasion of sin, uh, it, it's a denial of fallen human nature to say that it isn't. And then the, the third part of that is to, in effect, uh, run down the role of the man, run down the role of the male to uh, put... Uh, him on exactly the same level and the uh, uh, same function in society. And uh, then uh, to uh, punish him, to, to uh, put him in an occasion of sin, and then to punish him for the, when the effects of the fallen nature start to take over and uh, he becomes inclined to sin. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, um, uh, uh, you see the whole process there, how terrible it is in that, um, uh, just that one instance. Mm-hmm. And, Father, if I could just I'll perhaps throw in some of my experiences, I can say that what you're saying isn't just theory, and it's no joke. That's exactly what happens. I would just preface my mm-hmm. remarks. The interesting thing about the Canadian Army is it's a... As with many things Canadian, there's a lot of paradoxes involved there. And interestingly, the regimental system that Canada has gives a lot of autonomy to the various regiments. So I belong to a regiment called the Royal Winnipeg Rifles, and it just so happened that all of the senior officers in that regiment were very interested in the traditions of the regiment. They were very conservative-minded men. Uh, You know, they were definitely some natural virtues there, and they cultivated within that particular regiment a different, um, you know, very old world, very British, very proper type of uh, atmosphere. So I should say that I had many positive experiences uh, from experiencing that aspect of the Canadian Army. But then when we'd go for training with all the other regiments in the summer, that's when you really see the social laboratory at work. And the Canadian Army, unlike the American Army, at least I don't think the American Army has implemented this yet, Canadian Army has women are allowed in the combat arms as well, and I was in the infantry. So I, there weren't many women because most of them got injured because they physically couldn't handle the training, but while they were around... I can attest to the fact that there was that it was an occasion of sin, and there was a lot of sin going on. People would think, oh, well, you know, you're in the midst of training. And this wasn't easy training. I mean, we'd go for weeks at a time without any sleep. Uh, we'd be constantly on the move doing things, yet people would still, still find a way to avail themselves of that. Mm-hmm. And then, as Father says, the, the temptation is laid out there. It's like putting a piece of red meat out on a plate in front of a dog, and it, but then the army will land on you with both feet if you give in to that temptation and grab the piece of red meat. So, I mean, that's got to have a very damaging effect on people, I'd think. And um, women aren't just put on the same level. They are often in command of men, which I think can be very emasculating to men. And I know male soldiers, they all deeply resented that. No one would admit it because you're not allowed to and you could get into trouble, but you knew that they all resented it. Yeah, it, it just gives a whole host of problems. And I think another factor worth pointing out is there's no such thing really as non-combat arms in the modern military. Um, I know some young ladies that thought they wanted to be nurses or x-ray technicians or ultrasound technicians, but they figure that, well, I'll go work in the Army, at least in Canada, because ironically, abortions are not done in army hospitals here. So I've known some people, some young ladies have thought, oh, well, I'll go be a nurse in the army because then I don't have to have anything to do with abortions, but I can still be a nurse. But the thing is, in the modern military, at least in the Canadian army, even nurses need to do the same basic training as an infantry person. They still wear the same uniform. So it's not like they're wearing a nice modest dress. They're wearing the same army fatigues, which are cut for men. So they're, I mean, as immodest and uh, unfeminine as pants are to begin with, when you cram a woman into army pants that are cut for a man, they become even more so because 
well, I mean, men don't have as broad of hips as women, so... And uh, they even have some, you know, nurses, some ladies I know, they've been deployed to places like Haiti and they have them carry weapons, which it's actually in the contravention of the laws of war for uh, medics to carry weaponry. So that's another issue there. But I mean, there's, I, I think I point that out to show to people that you can't even be lulled into thinking, oh, well, if I go into non-combat arms, maybe this wouldn't be as much of a problem. Uh, it's all a problem, and um, it's part yes, of that total war concept, I think, of where all, they make all the citizens of a country into soldiers when there's a war. Well, now everyone who has anything to do with the army is a soldier. This isn't Florence Nightingale-type nurses that you see in movies about World War One. They're, they're soldiers <clears throat> who know how to bandage a wound as well. If, if I may, I think that, that this is an interesting point, maybe to make a point, to say that what, what we've been discussing about the, the social laboratory and the Petri dish of all this perversion and mix and immorality and uh, on the, all, all the unnatural elements of it, that's modern. But then I, I'm intrigued too, though, Nicholas, by your reference to the, um, the more traditional soldiers in the Winnipeg Rifles and the, 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 the British traditions and all of the rest. I think we need to make a point, the viewpoint of, uh, of, of the kingship of Christ, that that too is, and this is the more dangerous of the two. We obviously can reject the, what's going on in the, modern, in the modern army, but that's the old army, and that's naturalistic too. And that's, mm-hmm. uh, that, the, that, those are for wars that serve no purpose, for unjust wars, for, for, the, for, for the glory of the empire, to establish an empire, the British Empire once, or today the American Empire, and for its glory. And just, it just because I think there are so many things that are sort of classically or historically worldly and excessive in their worldliness, that because they, they come across as traditional, they have a certain glow. They're attractive to us, especially as traditional Catholics. But we, we oughtn't to be taken in by that because th- those two have their shameful history. It's just a just, just shameful history of World War I and all of the, um, the British youth who were slaughtered and, and for what? And for nothing. And for, to, to, to establish yet another war, World War II, and to establish the, the modern so-called democracies throughout the world. And mm-hmm. to bring about social change, not just social change in the army or with the youth, but social change, again, the role of women, women working in the munitions factories and all of the rest. That's what they were up to. And then, and then the tyranny, the taking away of the individual liberties and the reducing of the, of the voice of the church and Christ the King. So all, all of these things are, are really going on when, when, when we talk about modern war, even the traditional modern war. Right. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Millard, because as you say, even when the army is more traditional, it's only, or traditional is probably the wrong word, conservative, it's conservative of at most 100 years ago, which was still well into the atheistic, liberal, non-Christian milieu, as it were. Yes. Exactly, and, and 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 because of that, we have to be we have to identify these things as, as evils too, and not and not really be taken in by them. But I wanted to talk about too, if I may, a little bit. I have this idea that um, uh, uh, you talked about the paradox that you saw in the in many aspects of Canadian military life. Um, I think for. The, the, the soldiers today, doubt, uh, Americans for sure, doubtless Canadians as well, there, there, there's a real paradox. Partly is the, um, and this is partly the, the uh, effect of the propaganda machine. On the one hand, the soldiers are held up. They are glorified and honored, sometimes even in churches. You know, there are entire services or Sundays dedicated to the flag and uh, a national holiday or another, and the soldiers are constantly being held up as those who protect us. They protect our democracy. I remember seeing in the Atlanta airport this summer uh, a lady of a certain age going up to uh, two uh, soldiers in battle fatigues, and she wanted to kiss them and tell them how wonderful they were and, you know, we're really, uh, we're really with you and all. And it's, 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 a, it's a sad but a very telling sight that they're elevated. But I think that this elevation, these honors and the glory that they give to soldiers is a little bit similar to the elevation, the honors and the glories that would be given to old gladiators before they go in to fight to the death in the Colosseum for the entertainment of their betters 
or human sacrifice. I think of human, the victims and some pagan human sacrifice and how they're, they're, the virgin is dressed and, and paraded with flowers or the, 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 uh, the, 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 the victim is, is well fed for months in advance and then, then comes, then comes the blow. They're put to death. I, I think that's, I think that's how soldiers are treated today. And I think that the, that our masters have some sort of a mental man, manipulation in mind for this. And the tragedy of it is that many of the young people, even our traditional Catholics sometimes, for want of a, of a firm idea of what they're going to do with their lives, are drawn in by this, by this propaganda. And they're, they're, they're willing to sacrifice and not only their lives, that would be bad enough, but to sacrifice their souls. Because you've, you've been talking about the, the horrible occasions of sin that, 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 are, uh, that are to be found there. So they, they sacrifice everything. And for what? You know, at, at the end of the day, we always have to ask that question. For what? Right, right. And, and I could hear some listeners perhaps objecting, well, there's occasions of sin in every line of work. But I, to, to me, I think a big difference is that in the army or the air force and the navy, you're under orders and you're forced. Whereas, in another workplace, if you're finding that there's a very bad occasion of sin, you can ask to be transferred. You could uh, change another job. A lot of jobs or employers these days, I find, are surprisingly amenable. If if you <laughs> go and ask them, can I not be put into this situation or could I have this day off? In a civilian life, it's a lot easier to avoid those occasions. And you're never going to be in an occasion where you're being forced to literally sleep in the same room as a member of the opposite sex, for example, whereas in the Army it's all enforced, and you can go to jail if you don't do what you're told. Yeah, the thing about the the modern uh, armies is, is different, as we say, from my dad's army or your grandfather's army, is, is that uh, in the case of uh, the Green War and in the case of the uh, Second World War, and even in the case of the Vietnam War, uh, you were compelled to, um, by law to go into the army or uh, some other military service because the draft existed. So you were in a, uh, perhaps in an occasion of sin, but um, uh, you had no choice, as it were, uh, from the point of view of the civil law, but to be there. Now it's it's different because in the United States, as in so many other countries, the army is all volunteer. You volunteer to put yourself in the uh, occasion of sin. Perhaps in the case of, of uh, many of our young people, they don't quite realize what they're getting into by volunteering. But um, uh, in the practical order, uh, you are uh, putting yourself into the occasion of sin. It's a double jeopardy, isn't it, Father? It's, it's you're, you're duplicitary. Two two ways you're cannon fodder, not only uh, for whatever the current war du jour is, but you're also cannon fodder for your own soul and your own morality, because they're going to attack that too. And, and after all, for the to build up the spirit of esprit de corps, they're going to tear you down, and then they'll build you up again to make you that new man. But it's not a new man in Christ. It's a new man for the army or a new woman for the army who, who's got very little in the way of connected morality, even natural morality. That's just gone. So the, I think they take our poor, they take our uneducated, they, they take the hopeless, and they, they put them into the army, and they put them into an army uniform, and they, they're marching to the way of, of this brave new democracy, which is the tyranny of tomorrow. And could, could we even include uh, police in that when we're, we're talking about these careers? I mean, maybe not to the same extent, but I, I could see a lot of parallels as you're saying that, Millard, uh, especially given the ever-increasing militarization of the police. Well, the, because, the, yes, the police forces, especially in the States, the police force has been, has been uh, significantly militarized. And it, uh, they say that it, uh, both the Army appeals to those who want to fight, so, after all, you have to give them something to do then. If they're, they're trained to fight, well, let's have them fight, so let's have a war. And the, the military, or the, excuse me, the, the police force appeals, they, I just read this in preparation for the show, somebody was opining that, they, that the police force appeals to those who, in effect, 
don't really want to hold up very much in the way of uh, of decent values, aggression and uh, and deceit, because you see that more and more in the police forces um, mm-hmm. and uh, sort of uh, totalitarian power at your doorstep, you know, or stopping your car. Uh, the right. police force appeals to some characters like that, and now that it's militarized, it has become even worse. So certainly we could we could include them in that. And what a shame that is. These should be our servants, those who should be an, a role model to our youth. Are far from that today. Far mm-hmm. from that. And it seems that I don't know exactly what goes on in police training nowadays, but they must be doing some of the similar things that your Lordship described about breaking the individual down and rebuilding them in the mold they want, Mm -hmm. because they seem to be getting more and more um, to the point of whatever they're ordered to do, they'll do it without question. And that's how police can be used to really start oppressing the population, because they'll just do things without question, even if off the record they might say to you, yeah, I agree that abstractly they would say, yeah, that's bad. But if they're on the street and they're told to do it, they'll go and arrest that person that they know there's no evidence for. Or... And then, sure. And then it's a short, then, then, then it's a, uh, this may be your experience sometimes in a courtroom, I don't know, but then it's a very short road from there to actually lying on the stand, to lying mm-hmm. under oath about, 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 yes, it's because it's expected of you. This is the esprit right. de corps. This is where this is the policy. We need you to do this and you do it. So you, you, you something, as they say, something inside you dies. Some mm-hmm. little bit of, of, of natural morality just goes away now. Father, as you were talking about conscription for the Vietnam War, Korean War, etc., I, I was just wondering, are Catholics, are there circumstances under which a Catholic would be permitted or required to refuse to respond to being drafted and go to jail instead, or are Catholics never so-called draft dodgers? Honestly, the difficulty with regard to the civil law in the United States if, is if you're a conscientious objector, uh, the only way to obtain that status and to be excused legally, or the only way you could be excused legally under the uh, draft laws was on religious grounds was to uh, demonstrate somehow that uh, your religion objected to all wars, not just mm-hmm. a particular war. So as regards Catholics, you had a, a since the church has, has not been pacifist, uh, does not have a pacifist doctrine, you really could not excuse yourself on those particular grounds. But I suppose in the case of a, uh, if you're being drafted uh, to fight a war that you understand is uh, uh, clearly immoral, uh, then you would you would have to resist. But I think the obligation uh, to resist would be present only if it were uh, something that was absolutely clear. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's it's largely a um, theoretical question in the present situation. I, I guess especially since we don't have a hierarchy to make a proclamation. Have there ever been cases that you're aware of where Catholic hierarchy, like a local bishop or someone, has said that a certain war was immoral and forbidden the faithful in his diocese or a certain area from taking part in it? The only thing I'd be familiar with is the United States, and and, uh, I've not come across that in the United States. It's possible that existed in history somewhere, but um, I really don't have any information on that. Mm -hmm. I think think sometimes there were priests who preached against it. But if if a bishop opposed or say like in Nazi Germany, uh, he he generally did so as as Pius XII did that is to say in, in very guarded and indirect language, and well, that was really one of the problems with the, with the rise of, of the modern war machine in the United States was that the bishops either individually or collectively never did speak up. They just went along. They just went along with the program. And there's always a way to to modify those things and to and to parse it so that uh, so you end up without having to really take a strong position. But that, that leadership of Christ, for Christ the King on the part of the hierarchy that was their duty in the face of, of naturalism, resurgent, demanding naturalism, the god of the state, the god of militarism, I think, that, I think we can fairly say that leadership has been largely absent. 
uh, maybe in American history, some of the, well, there were a few bishops, for example, who opposed uh, the Civil War, who opposed um, Abraham Lincoln, who opposed the obligatory conscription, and they saw what Lincoln and the federal government was up to, and they, they opposed it. But then there were other bishops uh, who, who readily followed uh, the, the program. And then, but most bishops generally are just cowed into silence, I think. Can I, um, before we conclude, may I impose upon you to, of all things, and here we're talking about militarism, to read a poem. Oh, this is a, a uh, if, 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 if you would, I, I think it sort of, it sums up a lot of what I'd like to say or hear said on this topic as we deal with it again this, this month of, of militarism. The, the, the poem is called The Battle of Blenheim, and it was written by uh, a Robert Southey, um, who died in 1843. The Battle of Blenheim uh, took place um, in Bavaria, in the year 1704, the French and the and the Bavarians were defeated by an alliance of the English and the Austrians. And the English were under, at that time, the, uh, the Duke of Marlborough and a certain Prince Eugene. Bavarians and the French uh, lost about 30,000, and uh, the English and Austrians only about 11,000. And they say this broke the power or the prestige of, uh, of the Sun King, of Louis XIV. And for some, I suppose that would be, that would have been victory enough. But um, the poem, as as only as only a, a poem can do, the the poem points out the the, the, the moral of uh, of uh, of kings who fight for more power and more glory, and it leaves the peasants to to flee from burning homes, and it leaves behind the the skulls of all of the thousands of soldiers who gave their lives. And the, and the peasant grandfather, he only knows that, it, well, it was for a great victory. So this is, this is the Battle of Blenheim. It was a summer evening. Old Casper's work was done. And he, before his cottage door, was sitting in the sun, and by him, sported on the green, his little grandchild, Wilhelmine. She saw her brother, Peterkin, roll something large and round, which he beside the rivulet in playing there had found. He came to ask what he had found that was so large and smooth and round. Old Casper took it from the boy who stood expectant by. And then the old man shook his head and with a natural sigh, "'Tis some poor fellow's skull," said he, who fell in the great victory. I find them in the garden, for there's many hereabout, and often when I go to plow, the plowshare turns them out. For many thousand men, said he, were slain in that great victory. Now tell us what was all about, young Peterkin, he cries. And little Wilhelmine looks up with wonder-waiting eyes. Now tell us about the war and what they fought each other for. It was the English, Casper cried, who put the French to rout. And when they fought each other, but what they fought each other for, I could not well make out. But everybody said, quoth he, that twas a famous victory. My father lived at Blenheim then, yon little stream hard by. They burnt his dwelling to the ground, and he was forced to fly. So with his wife and child he fled, nor had he where to rest his head. With fire and sword, the country round was wasted far and wide, and many a childing mother then and newborn baby died. But things like that, you know, must be at every famous victory. They said it was a shocking sight after the field was won, for many thousand bodies here lay rotting in the sun. But things like that, you know, must be after a famous victory. Great praise the Duke of Marlborough won, and our good Prince Eugene. Why, t'was a very wicked thing, said little Wellamine. Nay, nay, my little girl, quoth he, it was a famous victory. And everybody praised the Duke, who this great man did win. But what good came of it at last, quoth little Peterkin? Why, that... I cannot tell," said he, "but twas a famous victory." Yeah, magnificent. Uh, mm -hmm. 
I think that's the perfect place to leave off. So uh, thank you, Lord and Father, very much for joining us again. And um, just to remind listeners quickly that you can support the apostolates of Bishop Dolan and Father Chikata and access much more work of theirs, articles, live uh, webcasts of masses from St. Gertrude the Great, especially if you live in an area where you have limited access to sacraments. Uh, all of that by visiting sggresources.org. Again, that's all one word, sggresources.org. Um, so I'd encourage our listeners to visit that and to uh, consider making a donation to uh, the St. Gertrude the Great Apostolate to help in, in another way, with prayers, of course, but uh, also if donations can help as well in the spreading of the kingship of Christ. So, uh, again, uh, my Lord and Father, I, I know you have lots of other work to do, so uh, I, I thank you again for joining us, and I'll let you get on with your days. Oh, very, it's been a pleasure having this clerical conversation, and, and, and thank you very much for facilitating it, Nicholas. God bless you. And God bless you all. Um, now, of course, uh, listeners, if you have topics that you'd like to suggest or feedback or questions for us, you can... Uh, reach uh, us at uh, clerical at truerestoration.org. Uh, again, that's the word clerical, C-L-E-R-I-C-A-L, at truerestoration.org. We're always happy to hear from listeners, happy to take uh, show suggestions, things that you'd like to hear us discuss with the clergy. And um, all of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. In addition to the, uh, the prayers and the donations that I posted earlier, it's um, always great for the clergy to receive that note of thanks to know that their work is appreciated. And uh, please think of offering a Mass, a Rose, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I'm Nicholas Wansbutter. Uh, thank you uh, w once again for listening, and uh, until next month, uh, may God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.